and uh, our teacher's away today, so you have a sub. And uh, unfortunately, like, you know, a lot of times I remember back in school when the sub was there, we'd just watch a movie. You know, it was basically easy, we're not going to do anything. But today it's worse because you actually have homework today. So anyways, but to start, I just want to kick off this topic. I want to talk real quick about tuning. So you show up with an instrument somewhere, and if the different instruments are not in tune together, we have a piano tuner with us today too. If all the strings aren't in tune with each other, there's a clash, right? So I'm going to see here today, I just put it together, and we tune to the piano, it's the primary instrument in our church. Okay, musicians, am I flat or sharp? Yes, a little flat. Okay, let's try again one more time. That's pretty close, and it depends how I hold my mouth and I'm not warmed up. Thank you, Mary, thank you for playing and helping me Get closer to it in tune. Now, that's my solo for the day. One note, C. And uh, I know that uh, some days you show up, you're in tune. Some days you show up and you're way out of tune. And that's uh, part of this broken world we live in. If you would, uh, we'll turn in our Bible to Revelation chapter 4. All right, did everyone get a handout? Probably a familiar verse that many of you have in your memory. Let's read that together here. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. All right, let's look at our handout today, and I want to give a a disclaimer as we get started here. Uh, Number one is uh, many Christians put very little thought into music, and it's just kind of something we have on autopilot in our life. Um, And I want you to know my lesson today is kind of like if you're a farmer, it's kind of like the first pass through a a field. Uh, I'm just going to skim over the top, and it's going to take others way beyond me to get much deeper. So this is not any exhaustive uh, look at this subject, but I want to just stir up our thinking and allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God uh, to start infiltrating our thinking or refresh our thinking on music. Now, if you have a handout, I'll just have this because it helps me Maybe it'll help you, Um, but uh, first of all, I want to talk about the originator of music, and some of you have heard recently, we read about it in uh, this morning messages uh, about Jubal, I think that's in Genesis 5, Uh, and then some of you music people out there know of a guy named Guido, Guido D'Azario, who kind of is the guy that took words and started putting little marks over top of them to indicate the pitch that you were supposed to sing. And then some of you are going to look at me and say, well, who who is the originator of music? It must be like one of those people like Bach or somebody. And uh, I'm not going to tread there. My wife's very sensitive about all those 
dusty, moldy musicians. So let's look at the next one, letter A, the sound of music. And here where, here's where we will find the originator. There are 300 plus Bible passages that mention music. And God's attributes include sound. He gave it to creation and thus music. We read here in Revelation chapter 4, he created everything. He created it for his pleasure. And we find that music, uh, number three there, appears at or before the seven days of creation. Go with me to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. I feel like whenever you enter Job and just hit a verse, it's like, wow, it's hard to just uh, <laughs> hit, and, hit and run here, but we're on a specific topic. But here, Job's kind of uh, confronted with his, his, his ignorance about some things and the Lord answering him about that. And in Job 38, 7, he asked Job about during creation, were you there? Were you there? And he says, when uh, actually in verse 6, it says the foundations were fastened and God, uh, it says, who laid the cornerstone. We're talking about creation. It says during creation, the morning, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And uh, I'm sure we could uh, go down the road a little deeper, but I think it's talking about the angels there. The angels were present. And here we uh, find the word for singing. They were making music. And one other reference, we don't have to turn there, but in uh, kind of a common chapter on Lucifer, Isaiah uh, chapter 14, verses 11 and 12, it talks about him and how he had fell. It calls him the son of the morning, and it refers to him that the noise of his vials, and the, the vials are a musical term, an instrument, a lute or an organ-type instrument, whether it was part of his body or a specific device. I don't know. None of us were there, right? But again, music is something that goes way back. We don't hear it of it being created, noise or sound in the seven days of creation. It's already like presupposed beforehand, and obviously it has developed. So look at uh, letter B there, the purpose of music. And if... Uh, we read 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so music can glorify God or man. And we should think of it, just as an illustration here, number two, think of it as a vehicle that carries words and truths. And this is just my thought there. The human voice is the greatest instrument because it's what communicates the words, the truth of the music. Now, I know sometimes music can be used in other ways. I can think of my grandfather was a dairy farmer, and Dad said 24-7 there was always music playing on the radio in the dairy barn because the cows liked it, okay? And uh, I don't know that the words meant a whole lot there, but there was an effect that the music had. Number three, their music is important in the church. We're thinking about God being the creator of music, and we also think of the purpose. He says everything was for his glory. And the church, letter A there, what is the definition of the church? The Greek word ekklesia for church is what? It's the called 
out or called forth assembly. If we miss either part of that, it being an assembly, I can't go assemble in my fishing boat and be at church, okay? And also, I have to be called out. It has to be people who are saved, people who have been brought to the Lord and received him. And so the church's music should be called forth to God there, letter B, called forth to God. And uh, we're just thinking about the background here, music. It's created by God and it's all the way uh, to our time in the church has a purpose that he, he gave there in Revelation 4.11. Okay, and then just kind of one final thought on the origination is, as God created the world, hasn't he allowed mankind to just take his creation and run in some ways? He's given us a free will. And so let us see there the development of music, the development. God created sound and he allowed mankind to take music to incredible heights and depths. And we won't, again, go into all that, but I'm sure your mind is thinking of some high moments of music. I can think of watching a young couple come down the aisle to the wedding march and uh, pomp and circumstance at graduation and just as I am at the end of the service, pleading with sinners to come to the Lord. Okay, but I also can think maybe down at the Civic Center at the rock concert in the mosh pit. And there's some pretty low depths that music has developed in our world today. So let's move on to number two there, the opinion of music. So the first thought there, letter A, is I am not a music expert. Now, I don't want you to write in there, Mike is not a music expert. I want you to write, I am not a music expert. Okay, because this is where a lot of us don't allow the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to direct our thinking because somehow we have this subject all in our box that we have figured out. And uh, some see music as a musician, some see it as a listener, some of you just think, I make joyful noise, that's how you see music, but who or what should guide our view? Go with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Ephesians 5, 18. Okay, it says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking in yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. So in this passage that music is mentioned, the context is the Spirit of God having an intoxication over your life. No, not a physical chemical intoxication, but a spiritual intoxication, a control of your life, and it even controls what comes in and what goes out. And so God wants us to use the glasses of God's word with his spirit leading us to understand it and that be the way we view, have our, if you will, our opinion of music. Now I want to read something. John Getch was recently at the teen rally in Custer. Here's a quote by him on music. Evangelist John Getch said, quote, we incorrectly take the idea that, the, uh, that music is a matter of taste to the extreme and say that it's just taste and therefore it's only relative. Taste, however, can be right and wrong. If my taste for entertainment is directed toward violence, I am told by scripture that I am wrong. If my taste in literature is slanted toward the profane, 
I'm obviously also in the wrong. And when Christians are in the opinion that their taste in music are relative, they take little to no thought of what is holy and what is profane, end quote. So one thought I have there just as a comparison here is letter B there, music and money <laughs> may be the top two areas people don't have a plan. We see a lot of floundering in our world, in, the, in, in my opinion, in those areas. Just, it's just something we don't put a lot of thought into. Maybe our diet, too. <clears throat> Not too sure about that. But who or what should guide our view? It is the Holy Spirit. It is to draw our conclusion, our opinion, and it may change through our life, too. Do you, you ever realize the Holy Spirit keeps finding things in your life that you're like, I didn't know that was a problem, and he brings them to our attention? Amen? Amen? So let's look at the oversight of music. I want to give the idea of a knife. I can think of Brett Foley here. He probably uses a knife to dress his wild game. Uh, I think maybe uh, Lisa might be a cake baker. She uses a knife to cut her cake. We might have uh, some of you here that work in a warehouse and you use a knife to open a box. But on the other hand, a knife can be used to mug or maim or murder it was used on 9-11 as the primary weapon on those airliners, okay? So in my opinion, at least at my house, I kind of have some oversight on knives, okay? I know you may leave yours laying all over, but I still have a six-year-old, right? And I tell you what, knives are used by our young people in destructive ways, Okay? So I want you to think of that as an illustration of music. Music can be used for good. It can be used for evil. It can draw us to God. It can draw us away from God. And it should have oversight. Number one there, the pastor's duty. The pastor's duty. Look at Acts 20 and verse 28. Again, some of this is, is, is a little generalized to you this morning because I just don't have time to go any deeper. But we're, we're thinking about in our Christian life and in our church, we have somebody here to help shepherd us. It says in Acts 20, 28, Take heed, therefore, and unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Now there's Paul at a pastor's meeting, and he's giving them instruction, and he calls them overseers. And in Hebrews 13, it says that uh, we should obey them that have a rule over you and submit our, yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give an account, they may, that they may do it with joy and not unto grief, for that's unprofitable to you. So we need to see, especially in our church setting, our pastor may choose not to permit, or he may remove some music. As time goes, a pastor from Wisconsin, Wayne Van Gelderen, said, once said, Constant evaluation of how well we are aligned with the truths of God's word and a willingness to put away questionable things is a strength of any vibrant ministry. R.B. Olette, our friend who has been here with us, said concerning music, we seem to have no anchor because music can be difficult to define and explain, particularly when we seek to do so from the Bible. People simply choose what they like and what appeals to them and Sometimes it is difficult for us mortals to always discern between that which is appealing to our carnal flesh and that which appeals to our godly spirit. And as a pastor, he says, 
It is my responsibility to establish a standard that I believe what the standard is that is safe and will keep us, that's his church, from trouble. And I urge cooperation in holding that guideline. The mission of the pastor is to be a shepherd to us. That's letter B there. The shepherd, as a shepherd, the pastor sets musical guidelines. Okay? I don't think he's coming to your house. I'm not going to speak to him to check your playlist. Okay? But he is overseeing us as a body. And he's going to give us the scripture and encourage us to follow God in our music. Now, look at letter A there. I skipped over. But I want you to see here, the mission of the church is not music. If you go, go to most churches today, probably in Rapid City, though, you would think so. But you know what it is? It's glorifying God by preaching the gospel and equipping the believers. Now, we know music has a role. But the Bible says that it was through the foolishness of preaching. You know, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said, God didn't even call me to baptize you. He didn't send me to baptize. He just sent me here to preach the gospel. Others, others will follow up those things. And then he, we have that verse that it talks about, it's through the foolishness of preaching that God will save them that believe. Okay, so let's support our pastor in this area. Because this can be a divisive area in the church. And listen, I can't speak for him, but I'm speaking about him because the Bible speaks about him. Okay? Now, here's where I could literally meddle, but I literally only have one statement here. Letter number two, excuse me, number two is the parents' duty. The pastor and the parents are really important in this area. Proverbs 22, 6, you know the verse that we should train up a child in the way he should go. I tell you what, if we're asleep at the switch and there's a railroader's term, train wrecks happen. That's right. And parents, if you don't know when those earbuds are in, what's going in, you're asleep at the switch. The last one there, number four, the opportunity of music. Again, the illustration of the knife. Think of all the things you do with a knife or scissors, something that's sharp. There's so many things your life would be so difficult without. If we were back in the Stone Age and we're using rocks, <laughs> I mean, and you know too how difficult it can be sometimes when your knife is dull, right? It's sometimes more dangerous. So there are things, music is a great opportunity to us in our lives, in our church. And letter A there, music is a ministry that involves the whole church. There's only one pastor. There's, only, there's some things that are only on his plate. There are teachers in our church. There are all kinds of Christian workers in our church, but there is no one here that should not be part of this ministry. Amen. We sing, and it's your chance, and don't hold back. Realize this is a chance you have to praise God and that's letter B there. Psalm 69.30 says, I will praise the name of God with song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. We sang that song this morning from Psalm 104, the same thought. Look at Colossians 3.16 with me. Colossians 3.16. 
letter B there is teaching. There's teaching. So in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching. Notice that word teaching and admonishing. One another with what? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You know, music is such a great teaching tool. It really is. I mean, I, it's not a spiritual song, but we teach our kids A, B, C, D, right? Music makes it stick, okay? And as much as I've taught in support of the pastor, but when we get to heaven, his job might be over as preaching, but we're all going to be singing. I'm, I don't know, right? I, I don't know, but I have a feeling we're going to keep on singing. I don't know. We won't be preaching salvation messages anymore. I know that. But we may still want to learn some things, and may, maybe even through music. And then finally, letter D there, comfort. Comfort. Music can be a comfort. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 23, it says, It came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took in harp and played with his hand. Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. And I tell you what, God gives songs in the night. And that's one of the ways he uses it. One of the primary things in a funeral is music. You know, I can think of being, again, talking about how music is used in different ways. I remember being at a funeral once. I was asked to come down to the funeral home. No other pastors were affiliated with this family. And you don't ever know what you're getting into other than you can give the gospel out and say some things to try to make a connection with that family. But the song, the main song that was played in the funeral home at that service was Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way. Okay? Music has such a, you know, you can have the feeling I felt when I heard, I had no idea what song they're going to play. I'm just there to try to create a presence of God to reach out to that family, okay? I don't know if there was any comfort in that, at least the way in my worldview, okay? I'm going to have my wife come. And if you would, turn in your songbook to uh, 124, okay? This is not an invitation. But I want to talk about comfort. I want to talk about comfort here real quick as we finish the class out. Okay, I want to give a couple hymn stories. As we look at music and how it can be useful, and sometimes there's a deeper meaning in the song. On 124, do you see, blessed be the tie that binds there? Let's talk about this song just for a moment. I'll see how much time I have two of these, but born in 1739... The author of this song, he was named John Fawcett. He was an orphanage, an orphan, excuse me, living in an orphanage by the age of 12 and became apprentice to a tailor, was largely self-educated, educated, and he was converted, though, by the preaching of George Whitfield. He lived in England. By 16, he was saved and just after their preaching. In 1765, he was called to a small, poor Baptist church in Waynesgate, Yorkshire, England. And his family, though, increased much faster than his income. 
Seven years later, after pastoring that little country church, he got a call from a large, influential Carter's Lane church in London. And this would be a huge step in his ministry, he thought, in his financial life. So he preached his farewell sermon to his church in Yorkshire. He loaded up six or seven carts with belongings and furnitures and books to be carried to London. But at this time, the members of his poor church were brokenhearted. Fervently did they pray that even now he would not leave them. And as the time for departure arrived, men and women and their children clung around him and his family in agony. One of the bright things in their little town was their church and their pastor. The last wagon was loaded and Fawcett and his wife sat down on one of their cases to weep. He looked into the tearful face of his wife as tears were flowing down his own face. His wife said, John, John, I cannot bear this. I know not how to go. Nor I either, said John Fawcett, the pastor. Nor will we go. Unload the wagons. Put everything back in its place where it was before. And the people cried for joy. A letter was sent to the church in London telling them that coming to them was impossible. God's will was that he should stay. And he has sacrificed the attraction of London and its large church and pulpit to the affection of a poor but devoted flock. He continued to serve in that same town and pastored also in a nearby other village for the remainder of his active ministry until he died at 78 in 1817. And he wrote this hymn that you see to commemorate the event. But here's the rest of the story. In your song, and as many hymns are too, the title of the song is the first line of the song, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And as the last verse says, when we are called to part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. The title he put over the song in his hymn book was Brotherly Love. And I just want to tie in, if I go back one more, if you look at verse 2 there, or verse 2 I think is in your hymn book, when we share our mutual woes, this is what Brother DeGarmo has been teaching on. I forget that big fancy verb that he's been talking about, but it's the word mutual, right? Does anybody remember it? Reciprocal. Okay, something reciprocal. But that's what mutual means, right? And that's what him and his church... So this grave marker is there on the grounds of that church. And it's interesting in my research on this story, this building still stands in England. That church did not close as a Baptist church till 2001. We know churches are closing all over England. But that's the story of John Fawcett. One other song since the bell hasn't rung. <laughs> oh, love that will not let me go. This is not in our hymn book for whatever reason. But if you know anything about this song, how many have heard this hymn? We have a few. You can at least hear the tune. Jordan Matheson was born in Glasgow in 1842. 
He was the oldest of eight children, but he only had partial vision as a boy. He graduated with honors from Glasgow University when he was only 19, but a deep tragedy was developing. He was going blind. George was there at school and an even heavier blow came upon him. While he was at the university, he met, he fell in love with a girl who was a fellow student and they were planning to be married. They were engaged. He broke the news of his impending blindness to her though. He was told he would not recover from the condition. Would she still marry him? How painfully though, her blunt answer came, quote, she said, I do not want to be the wife of a blind man. And with that, they parted. But God sent another, his sister. His sister was devoted to his ministry. His sister helped him read the Bible. She transcribed and dictated his sermons and assisted him every week in memorizing the sermons. As far as I can tell, he pastored two churches blind, 13 years at one and 18 years at the other. He memorized every sermon before he gave it. But now at 40 years old, his sister now plans to be married. So he'll lose his dearest companion. And it brings a fresh reminder of the tragedy that he has never married. And the nearest thing was heartbreak. So he tells the story about this song. He says, it was the night before my sister's marriage, quote, the rest of the family were staying overnight in Glasgow. Something happened to me though, which I know only to myself. It caused me severe mental suffering. This hymn is the fruit of that suffering, he says. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression of having it dictated to me by some inward voice rather than it working out myself. I'm quite sure the whole work of this song was completed in five minutes, and I'm equally sure that I never received at my hands any retouching or correction. He admits I have no natural gift of rhythm. All other verses I have ever written were manufactured, but this song came like a day spring on high. Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O oh, light that follows all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. And I can't read the last one hardly without crying, oh joy that comes through what? Pain. Oh joy that comes, that seeketh me through pain. So troubles are part of life. Jesus faced troubles, troubles his disciples felt troubles, and so do we, the people of God. We may be blind, we may have heartache, however, as this hymn articulates, troubles don't have to be, have the last word. George pastored those churches. He died blind, unmarried in 1906. 
Though he never married, he continued to prove the truth that his hymn, which says that there is a love that would never let him go, the love of Christ for him a sinner. Let's pray.